Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. And just a reminder that there will be no Sunday school the next two weeks. The men's and women's studies will conclude this week. And uh, next week we will have communion Sunday. In the month of December, we look at passages that teach us about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ask yourself, why, why are we reading Psalm 22? How does this take my heart and my mind to the reality that the eternal Son of God took upon human flesh? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. And they they say that in a mocking tone. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The transcendent 
immortal, immutable, unchangeable, invincible, omnipotent, Son of God, added to himself human nature so that the details of this psalm could be said of him. As long as he only had divinity, which sounds kind of weird to say, but as long as he was limited to his divine nature only, he did not have a strength that could be dried up like a potsherd because the strength of God, the arm of the God, the arm of God cannot fail. But if he acquired human strength, a human constitution, a human physiology, then he could have strength that would fail him. He could have a tongue that would cleave to the upper bridge of his mouth as he is utterly dehydrated and gasping for breath. He could have hands and feet that would be pierced. He would have clothes that would be cast for lots among those who were sneering at him. Such a a condescension that the immortal, all-glorious Son of God undertook so that sinners like us could be shown grace. What love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as a response of this, as a consequence of this season and this Lord's day and the every occasion that we come to think upon your sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary, I pray that you would, by your power, that you would make us fall more in love with you than we have ever been before. Help us to see greater depths of your love for us. Help us to see the depths to which you stooped in humility to serve those who should have been serving you all along. To think that the immortal God became a small babe, shivering in the cold, in a dirty manger, in Nazareth of Galilee, all those years ago. You took on human flesh so that it could be offered up as a propitiation for sins. So that the just wrath of God would be satisfied. And God, who is the supreme judge, would be, con- would be declared just in declaring sinners forgiven. How great this incredible gospel is. Amen. Ephesians 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and I'll be preaching through 17 to 19, but I want to, I want to read it in its entirety for you, just so that we don't miss any of the context. This is Paul's prayer. Pick it up at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And I gave you our outline last week, Paul's three petitions is that we would be empowered by God, that we would better know the love of God and that we would be filled up by God. Allow me just a, a, a moment or two to recap what we looked at last week. Paul's first petition was that believers would be empowered by God. And this was an encouraging recognition by God made apparent to us by Paul through these pages of scriptures. But it's nonetheless a recognition on the part of God given to us that he is aware of our inadequacies and our limitations and our inconsistencies and our weaknesses and the fact that we have not yet arrived. And that time and time again we fail to measure up and to amount to practically what we are positionally in Christ. We are declared righteous. We often do not act righteously. We are declared holy. We do not always behave in a holy manner. And if it were left at that, merely that God acknowledged our failures, aware that we aren't what we ought to be, and that we don't, as Paul says in Chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. If it was left at that and nothing more, I think it would be a discouraging thing. Because our only recourse would be to look within, try to find a solution, try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, as it were, and trying vainly trying our best to do better, all the while our conscience is yelling at us like Ermie Lee. But as I said, this acknowledgement on the part of God and on the part of Paul of our limitations is, is encouraging because with God's acknowledgement of our limitations and our inadequacy comes his promise and his offer of provision of strength and power rather than condemn us rather than cast us aside, since we are utterly worthy of all this, we are, rather than cast us aside, he meets us in our weakness, he supplies what we lack, and he empowers us. Beloved, I'm greatly encouraged by that, as I hope you are. He empowers us to the end with the effect that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells and rules and reigns in our hearts and our minds and our wills so that our lives would be a display of his rule and his power and his grace and his mercy and his glory, no matter what the external trappings of our circumstances are. 
no matter what temporary circumstances you find yourself in today, God empowers you so that you and so that the world would know Christ dwells in you. This is what Paul's praying for. This is what Paul's praying for. He prays for God's work, for God's power to be at work so that so that he empowers us through our weakness. And the fact that he has to pray for this, the fact that he has to pray for this should tell us that we shouldn't be surprised when our Christian walk doesn't come together through our own strength and through our, through our own efforts and through our own power. I fear that the church has entertained too many Christian fads. Too many Christian fads. Too many innovative techniques. Too many inside secrets about 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 how to walk the Christian walk. Paul lays it out here by taking his request to the throne room and laying it square at the feet of the king. He is where we find our strength. He is the strong tower to which the righteous man runs and is safe. It is he in whom we abide and bear much fruit. It is in him that our life is hidden. It is he who lives in us and empowers us to live confidently by faith in the inner man. And so I would ask you, what do you think would help retain confidence and attachment to a God like that? to a source of power like that? What would keep you plugged in? What would help shape your affections so that you would gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ and stop fueling your flesh and making provisions for it since it is, as 1 Peter 2.11 says, waging war against your soul? What would, what would motivate you to cease having a divided front and instead stay tapped into this incredible source of power? What would help you zone in and remain anchored in the lordship of your Savior and to keep your affections strong for him? I posit I suggest to you that it would be to better know his affections for you. You want to know what will help you, motivate you, compel you to love him better? Then it would be to meditate and to think about his love for you. And that leads us to Paul's second petition, his second prayer request, namely that we would better know the love of God in Christ. He moves beyond asking that God would provide power towards asking that God would do the very thing that would keep our hearts dwelling upon Christ, namely that we would come to better know the love of God that he has toward us, that we, that we receive, that we discover, that we possess, that we appropriate, that we make our own and, and get our fingers around in Christ. Paul says, continuing uh, his, his, uh, his request, he says, and that you, 
being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul points to the love of God found in Christ as that which you must know and comprehend and grasp and understand if you are going to grow and be effective in the Christian life. And maybe you know this, but maybe you don't know how pivotal this is. Maybe you don't know in the depths of your hearts, or as as some people say, in your heart of hearts, maybe you don't really know how fundamental this is to your Christian walk. When you are tempted to be bitter and discontent because of your circumstances, because of the lot that you've been dealt because of the way that things are playing out, I would ask you, what is that other than questioning the love of God for what he has done in your life or what he has allowed to fall on your plate? When you get discouraged, what is that except an indication that you've lost sight of the love of God that he has lavished on you? when you're just bumbling through life and you are content with the status quo and you are spiritually apathetic and you have no, no drive, no, no compulsion to grow in your Christian faith, what is that but a failure to respond to the magnanimous love of God that he's demonstrated towards you? What I want you to see is that what Paul is, do, is praying for here, what, what Paul is asking for is not some tertiary matter. This is not some, oh, by the way, God, while, while, while I'm praying, while I'm asking for some things, let's throw in some of these things too kind of prayers. This is pivotal. This is crucial. This is game-changing. This is absolutely essential for the Christian, for you, to come to better know the love of God in Jesus Christ that exists right now. This isn't theoretical. This isn't potential. This is love that exists right now, and it is active in the heart of God, and it is favorably disposed towards your good. This is the love that we need to grasp and to better know. Paul gives us two metaphors in verse 17, and and he mixes his metaphors, rooted and grounded. One is agricultural, one is architectural. Rooted. Rooted as the idea, uh, or it, it conveys the picture of a tree or a plant whose roots have dug down deep into the soil to find water. And because the the roots have gone down deep, even when it's a hot day, even when it's a particularly dry season, the tree doesn't need to worry because it's able to tap into a source of nourishment 
regardless of the weather up top. No matter what's going on up here, the tree is doing fine. That's the idea, because it's rooted. The tree is getting what it needs to survive and thrive. Psalm 1-3 gives a picture. The, the Old Testament is very vibrant, very rich in its, pitch, in its pictures. And it gives us this picture. Uh, it likens one who meditates on Scripture, on the law of the Lord. And he says, the one who does that, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water and it's not the same word but it conveys the same idea as being rooted which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers because he is rooted no matter what happens to him no matter where he goes he gets the nourishment he needs to thrive and the adverse picture is found in Jesus's parable. The parables are very vivid. That's that's why they're that's why Jesus used them. In his parable of the soils, we find the adverse, the opposite picture of being rooted. We see a picture of the lack of being rooted, the danger of not being rooted. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered. Who can tell me why? Because they had no root. Rooted. Be rooted in the love of Christ. Second metaphor Paul gives that he's he's pleading to become a reality to God is grounded now rooted as i said is an agricultural word grounded is an architectural and it has the idea of being firmly established of being fixed well founded or today we might say bolted down you know i used to like to make things and uh, back in the day i would use duct tape and super glue and there was nothing you can't fasten down with duct tape and super glue but I came to find out that there are even things that duct tape and super glue cannot fasten well enough. So now I use flanges and brackets and nuts and bolts. Loctite. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and, and so that's the idea. Something that has brackets and braces or flanges with nuts and bolts. Fastening that thing's down. That, that thing's not going anywhere. You can shake it. You can rattle it around. You can dangle it behind your truck on a cross-country road trip. It's not coming apart because it's fastened. It's grounded. And you've heard Jesus use this word. The, you've, you've heard him use the Greek word for grounded when he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been, and the, the English says founded. It's the same word for grounded. It was grounded. It was fastened. It had its foundation on 
the rock, Matthew 7, 24 to 25. Jesus' own image that he gives with this parable perfectly suits what Paul is praying for. That when, not if, that when the rains of life falls and the floods of trials and weaknesses come and the and the winds of adversity and opposition and suffering blow that your life and your heart won't be tossed asunder and come crashing apart like the fool who built his house without a solid foundation. Instead, when these things happen, and and beloved, they do for everybody. When these things happen, your faith doesn't come apart at the seams. But instead it stands firm. And yes, maybe you get a little dinged up. Maybe you get a little discouraged. Maybe a little exterior damage on the window dressing. And some things that are replaceable have to get replaced. That, That happens. But the house itself, and the house is the metaphor for your life, for your faith, for your soul... The house itself, when all is said and done, it's still standing because it was grounded on the rock. How we must be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. I mean, do do you get a sense for why this is so pivotal, why this is so crucial? This is not optional. This is not like an elective course for the Christian walk. This is essential. This is absolutely essential. We must see how vital, we must see and believe how vital the love of Christ is for our souls, how wise we would be to appropriate it, how wise we would be to embrace it, to walk in it, to appreciate it, to cherish it, to respond to God in worship because of it with a spirit of sincere gratitude that he would be so gracious and kind to lavish it upon us in the first place. And how foolish is the person who says in his heart, oh, I've heard this one before. God God is love. I've heard this before. God so loved the world that he, yeah, I've heard this. I can, I can, this is a rerun. I've got this one in the bag. Pastors, pastors preached on this before. The heart that says that and tunes out is a foolish heart. My friends, your roots, the roots of your heart need to dig down deep into this reservoir Your heart needs to be grounded, fastened, bolted. Get the Loctite out and fasten yourself to the love of Christ. The Christian life is about letting the is about letting objective truths guide us and govern our feelings, not the other way around. Too many Christians, too many people let their feelings be the gauge of truth. Too many people 
let their feelings, which can be subjective, which can be one thing this time, this day, and another thing tomorrow, determine what is right. Do not do that. We must not do that. And we must not, like Job's friends, determine that God only loves us, that we are only standing in the love of God, that we have only received the love of God, provided that life is peachy keen. And that the sun is out, which apparently is not often in Washington. And that things are going our way and that our team is winning the game and that the dogs are at bay and that we have more friends than enemies and the bills are being paid. Let us rather dig into the word of God and, 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 and not be static here. Do not be a bystander. Do not, do not be on coasting in coasting gear right now. Let's dig into the word of God to, say, to, see, to see what the word of God says about the love of God in Christ so that you can set your mind on it, so that you can meditate on it, so that we can be rooted and grounded in it. Thinking about the love of God should instantly take us, I would think, to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is a giving love. He so loved the world that he gave his beloved son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This word for love, agape, means unconditional love, meaning that God wasn't waiting around for certain conditions to be met before he dished out his love. God wasn't waiting for for you to choose him first. God wasn't waiting for you to become a qualified recipient or for you to get your life together or to measure up or to have anything that he wanted. God wasn't interested in what you could bring to the table when he chose to place his love on you and when he chose to save you. And because he has put his love on you, you have eternal life. First John 4, 9 and 10 says this, By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we may live through him. You have life because God gave. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for your sins. Because he put his love on you, you have life. Because God gave, you have. You have eternal life. You will never perish. Your sins are put away. The ledger has been wiped clean. Again, I say God's love is a giving love. It is a life giving love. God's love is also a gracious and a merciful love. I couldn't decide which one of those qualities I wanted to use, so I used both. I'm in the pulpit. I can do what I want. <laughs> God's love is a gracious slash merciful love. And, and really, do you really have to divide the two qualities? They go so well together. Romans 5, 7, and 8. Hardly will one die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would, would dare even to die. 
But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, we weren't a righteous man. We certainly weren't a good man. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When all the things that Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 were true of you, Christ died for you. When you were dead in your sins, when you were enslaved to the world, and when you were a child deserving of wrath, when you were an utter and complete ne'er-do-well, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. He took your place. He took the sufferings that you deserved. And he suffered them. And in exchange, the good that he deserved to to have fall upon him might fall upon you. God's love is a gracious and a merciful love. God's love is a begetting and adopting love. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. I mean, you you can almost hear the Apostle John's amazement seep through the words. What amazing love. See how great a love the Father would have that, that, that me, that Aaron, that this scoundrel that someone who's had the thoughts that he's had, someone who's, who's coveted after, so someone who's a coveter and an idolater like Aaron, that, that Aaron would be called a, a child of God. That's amazing love. How great a love is that? How great a love is, is that someone like you would become a child of God? It is a begetting, adopting love. And, 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 and just as we, uh, just as I alluded to Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, all the things that we get in Ephesians 2, 4 and following, newness, uh, newness in life and being exalted in Christ and being seated in the heavenly places in Christ and being seated as a prince. And as someone, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, as someone who was far off, we have been brought near. Because you're a child of God. Because God has begotten you. He has made you His. Ah, but Aaron, that, that's the Father's love. That's the Father's love, Aaron. Jesus gave Himself because He had to do whatever the Father told Him to do. John ten eighteen. Jesus said, no one has taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And actually, the love of Christ did have him laying it down. John said, uh, Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that one do what? Lay down his life for his friends. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for his friends. All of them. And for those who have not experienced this love, 
I don't think any words will suffice. For those who have experienced it, I don't think any words will quite do. Samuel Rutherford wrote in prison, he was a Scottish Puritan pastor. He wrote in a, what I would, all I know is that he was in prison in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen's in Scotland. So I would assume it's, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming his prison cell is very cold, very dank, very dark. And he says this, Christ's love is the hottest coal that I have ever felt. Cast all the sea salt on it and it will aflame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench this love. Thomas Watson, commenting on 2 Corinthians 8 9, which says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Commenting on that verse, Thomas Watson says this, He was poor, that he might make us rich. He was born a virgin. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in a manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold love that passeth knowledge. It was love in God the Father to send Christ and love in Christ that he came to be incarnate. Love was the motive in his heart. The love of God in Christ for you is greater than you will ever know. Greater than you can ever know. David said in Psalm 139, 17 and 18 that he, that if, if all God's thoughts towards him, that, that they were so vast, they were so innumerable, so large, that if they were all to be counted, they were out, they would outnumber the sand. And that means something coming from a man who lives in the Middle East. Frederick M. Lehman wrote at the beginning of the 20th century, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Look at these different terms of measurements that Paul uses in his prayer breadth verse 18 breadth and length and height and depth breadth with which is the same thing as width how wide is the breadth of the love of christ it is wide enough it is great enough to embrace the entire world 
It is a love that said Israel is not enough. The light of Christ will save men of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. The length, how, how long is the love of Christ? Don Green said it's so long that he conceived of your redemption in eternity past before the world began and he has intentions of love set upon you that will stretch into eternity future for the ages upon the unfolding ages of eternity. A million, billion trillion years from now you will be discovering new facets new sides new details new corners of the love that jesus christ has had for you for millennia past spurgeon said this it is so long the love of christ it is so long that your old age cannot wear it out So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations cannot drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. That's a long love. How high is it? High enough to raise you with Christ and to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places and to hide your life in him? high enough to raise even the lowliest of sinner, even the chief of sinners to the throne of God in favor, in grace, in kindness? How deep is the love of Christ? A thousand times deeper than the deepest unexplored crevice of the Mariani Trench. It just suffice to say the love the, the, the depth of the love of Christ is utterly, utterly bottomless. And it is not an exaggeration to say that the love of God is profoundly vaster and larger and wider and deeper and taller and sweeter and mightier and greater and grander and more enduring and further reaching and frankly more inexhaustible inexhaustible than you can ever fathom ever no wonder paul describes it as a love that surpasses understanding You will never, ever, ever, ever learn the whole of it. And how dare anyone think they have a PhD, that they have a degree on the love of Christ and that they know all there is to know and they can, they don't need to know anymore. How foolish. How reprehensible. In the same breath that Paul prays for you to be empowered by God, he likewise prays for you and for me to grasp even just a minuscule measure of how broad and how grand and how deep and wide and profoundly magnanimous all the dimensions of this selfless, life-giving, begetting, saving love of Jesus Christ is. My friend, my dear friend, you tap into that. 
you tap into that. You get rooted into that. You get grounded into that. Anchored, loctited, whatever. You, you latch onto that. You'll have no issues whatsoever with Him dwelling and reigning and ruling your life. No issues whatsoever. Everything else in your life will pale in comparison. Everything. The amazing nature of His love and what He's done for you in saving you will so captivate you. It will grab you. It will grab your attention. It will shape your affections. It will influence your decisions and your choices. It will have a sanctifying effect on you to the effect that nothing in life will be able to pull you away or tempt you away or goad you away into betraying His love. Nothing would allure you away from wanting to honor that love and to live a life worthy of that love. And so it's no mere consequence that we're approaching the bulk of the text where Paul's going to then explain what living a life worthy of that love looks like, which he begins in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, all this doctrine, everything up until now is about getting your heart and your mind and your soul in the right place before being given your marching orders as a Christian. But we have one more point this morning. Paul's third prayer request. His third petition that we would be filled up by God. Filled up by God. Second half of verse 19. And that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know? How do you know that a redneck has found something really good at the buffet? Daniel, the look on your face is. I, 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 I would say I would say when the redneck comes back and everything on his plate is this one dish, or even two plates. And let's that, that, that say that let's say that he's already gone. He's already gotten a plate, and he's eaten some of this, and some of this, and some of this, and then he tries some of this, and his eyes open, and he puts that plate aside, and he goes back, and he brings back just a plate of this one thing, because it's so good. I think Paul is is tapping into that. Peter says says in a very pastoral tone in First Peter two. Two to three, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow into respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And I think this 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 pastoral exhortation is what Paul is tapping into in his desire to to, to see God's goodness and God's grace and God's truth be tasted in our lives, and for us to see how good it is. 
and that we would that we would cling on to it, that we would latch on to it like a like a new more, newborn babe is is latching on to the end of a bottle. That we have tasted that the kindness, that the fullness of God is good and we want more. I think Paul is saying that if you've tasted the love of Christ and the goodness of Christ and the goodness of His saving purpose in your life, then feast on it. Fill your bowl with it. Get seconds. Get thirds. Keep going back until you are utterly saturated and gorged on it. I would have you be filled up with God and with His grace and with His love and with His truth and with His salvific purpose. I would have you filled up with His promises. I would have you filled up knowing that He is sovereign and that He is good and that everything He does is right and that He is wise. I would have you filled up on all the things of God like that. Oh, that our hearts and our minds and our soul would be saturated with the love of God in Christ and all the things, all the things of God in Christ to the extent that we are rooted and grounded in Him. And all that He has, all of His qualities, all His wisdom, all of His purpose is being realized in us and through us and in our lives that would be an incredible state for us to be in don't you think knowing you stand in eternal purpose in the eternal purpose of God gives you peace putting your hands towards the good works that you know God has prepared for you to do gives you drive. Oh, that we would lap up all of this rich biblical truth so that we would be completely and utterly full of it and that it would permeate everything we did, everything we said, everything we thought and put our mind to. And that is precisely what I think Paul is praying for when he says that, when he's asking that the fullness of God would fill us up someone emailed me this week and and asked me what my vision for the church is and there's a there's a number of pastors who have answered a question like that and and they'll say something like you know we want to reach a certain number by so many years by by 10 years we'd like to plant a daughter church and 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 those are good those are good things to, to want. I think if we were to ask Paul what his vision for the church, what it would be, it would be these th- three things that he's praying for. And so that's my vision for our church. This is my vision for you. That we would be a people who stop looking into ourselves and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and relying on our old strength and instead would be resting in Him and be empowered in Him and know everything that we are in Him and dedicate our lives to living those things out 
that we would be empowered by him, that we would set our hearts to study his love for us, that we would be enraptured by his love for us. And that everything that God is would permeate through us. Through us while we're here at church, while we're at home, while we're at work, wherever you are, that the fullness of God, that his qualities would just seep out of you. That's my, that's my vision. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to, help us to rest in the strength that you provide. Help us to not be like Peter, who thinks he had what, everything he needed within himself and who boasted that he would never fall away. Help us to decrease so that you can increase. Help us to see how lovely you are, how beautiful you are, how wise you are, how powerful you are. Give us a greater sense of your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your strength, your glory. Lord, help us to fall more in love with you. Let that be a reality that happens by by the power of your spirit this week. May we be a church, may we be a people that are fully and completely and shamelessly enraptured by you. Amen.